What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Talal Tabah is the co-founder of Jabril Networks. In this conversation, we discuss how he convinced a Saudi prince to buy crypto, what the regulatory and startup environment is in the Middle East, and how tokenized debt will likely become more popular moving forward. This conversation was a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy it nearly as much as I did. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, I am super excited to have uh, Talal here. We've got a, a ton to cover. Um, Talal and I met uh, actually in the Middle East uh, last year um, at a conference. So thank you very much for uh, for coming on there, buddy. Thanks. Thanks, man. Uh, pleasure to see you again. Yeah, we met at a conference in Kuwait, actually. It was one of my uh, first visits to Kuwait. Uh, it was a pretty good conference. Um, you don't get too many of those. I think the conference uh, scene got a bit saturated over the past year. Um, but yeah, I, I got to meet you and I'm very happy to be on the show. For sure. All right. So maybe let's go through uh, your background and kind of how you got into crypto for those that don't know before we get started. Great. So I actually used to live in the US. I studied in Purdue University. Um, I did engineering there, and that's how I got into crypto. Uh, there was a, let's say, um, community at Purdue that was getting into, there was no crypto at the time, it was Bitcoin. Um, then I started working for PwC, so I kind of ditched the engineering thing and got in, more into finance. Um, after working in PwC for a couple of years in Abu Dhabi, which is actually where we got our first success as as uh, as Gibral in terms of implementations with banks. So I worked with PricewaterhouseCoopers in the financial advisory um, business unit. That's where we consulted for a lot of banks, uh, for regulators, and that's when I started really um, figuring out that processes at banks are insanely bureaucratic, and that <laughs> something has to change. Um, Actually, maybe rewind a bit more. I, my first internship was at the Central Bank of Jordan. And as an intern, my role was to basically uh, look at the self-reporting for uh, the capital adequacy uh, self-reporting that banks do. So that was the Basel III and Basel IV convention. And basically, banks had to self-report how much cash they had and whether that was compliant or yeah, compliant to the capital adequacy requirements. And then each bank would basically send this PDF file where an intern, which was me at the time, would look at it and throw that PDF file out in a drawer. And that was basically it. Um, And that really got me thinking that the way that we approach regulations is insanely backwards. Uh, It's it's very reactive as opposed to proactive. Uh, So going back to, yeah, I I mentioned that because it's relevant on why I got into Gibraltar. Uh, okay. I'm the co-founder of Gibril. I'm not the, actually the founder of Gibril. Yezan, who lives in New York, uh, came up with the brilliant idea. So yeah, I used to work in Abu Dhabi for PricewaterhouseCoopers. We consulted for one of the members of the Saudi royal family. 
Um, and I was very upfront and honest with him during my time at PwC so that he asked me to leave PwC and join him. Uh, he had about $3 billion of assets. So he's a pretty big businessman. Um, and during the time I convinced him to get into Bitcoin, Ether, this, is, this was about 2015. Um, he's about 32 years old, uh, chemical engineering graduate as well. So sharp guy who also happens to be a Saudi prince. So he had, uh, let's say, strong financial backing. Um, and when I told him that I wanted to uh, quit working for him and do Gibral, like definitely, because obviously as, as someone that bought Ether and, and Bitcoin at, at an early stage, obviously have some, has some level of attachment to, to digital assets, just like me and you and a lot of people on the show do. Um, for sure. So, yeah, basically, yeah. so let, let me ask this. Um, the idea that uh, a member of the Saudi royal family is buying crypto is probably not something most people think about. What, what's the reasoning? Is it pure capitalist? Um, you know, and, and just, hey, I think this is going to appreciate in price. And so I want to make more money. Is there uh, some qualitative arguments in terms of, uh, you know, wanting to hold on to sound money or, or have access to um, kind of mathematically verifiable assets? Well, just walk me through that, that kind of logic as to how you get a prince of the Saudi royal family to buy uh, crypto. Good question. So actually, it's a lot more uh, philosophical than just, uh, it's a very philosophical question. The Saudi prince that I used to work for, um, who's a good friend of mine as well now, uh, basically inherited a lot from his dad. So his dad was very traditional in the sense that they owned real estate, uh, they owned um, operating companies, but it was all traditional. So construction, insurance, and coming in and inheriting that sum of money, um, you obviously want to change. You don't want to continue. You want to continue in the steps that your, your father did to build it, but you obviously want to have a stamp of your own. You, you want to have, let's say, be part of the new economy. Uh, and, and Bitcoin and crypto was the perfect opportunity to do that. So when I say he invested in Bitcoin and Ether, that doesn't mean he only invested in that. He invested in a couple of uh, AI startups. Yep. Uh, he, he invested in, um, yeah, so basically, um, I don't know if you want to call it Web 3.0 or one of the fancy new acronyms, but you, you get the hang of it. He wanted to invest into things that are non-traditional, let's say. Yep, non-traditional assets that have some element of technology and, and uh, innovation, it sounds like. Exactly, exactly. So All when right, people well, say Saudi prince, it's a bit intimidating, but he's a businessman, uh, profit-oriented, just like most of us. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was good. I worked for him for about two and a half, three years. And then when Yazan, Yazan actually uh, went to the same high school that I did. Um, and when I heard about his idea, I was like, listen, I love it. It's way better than my idea. I had, I had an idea at the time. Yeah, this is interesting. I sold a couple of aircraft for the Saudi prince. And selling a private aircraft is one of the most tedious processes you ever go through. Uh, so at the time, I thought, all right, I like blockchain. I went into the aviation field a bit and saw how, uh, let's say, fractured the process for selling an aircraft is. It makes sense to put aircraft registrations, all the maintenance records and stuff on chain. Yeah, uh, for the different eight eight parties to verify. So 
I wanted to start working on that idea when I bumped paths into Yezen again. I was like, yeah, Yezen has a way better idea than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot more interesting. So Jibril actually started off as uh, something called Hawala. Hawala means transfer uh, or money transfer. So when Yezen came up with, with Jibril, it was actually supposed to use crypto as a form of uh, remittance. So blue-collar workers in the UAE and the GCC in the Middle East in general pay a lot to the likes of Western Union and others to get money sent back home. So what they do is they use something called the Hawala system. Hawala system is an unofficial uh, way of sending money back home where I come to you, I'm like, Pomp, listen, you have family back home in Jordan. Give me cash now. I'll make sure that someone goes to your family and gives them the equivalent in your local currency. Yep. So it solves the last mile problem. It solves the insane uh, rates that these companies charge, not only per transaction, but also on, on the spread for the Forex. Um, so when, when we wanted to do the Hawala system that, that Yezen had created, we realized that crypto was too volatile of an asset to be used immediately for uh, remittances. Uh, when something that is, is extremely volatile, uh, it becomes very challenging to use it as a unit of measure. So that's when Victor, our CTO, came up with the idea of crypto depository receipts. Crypto depository receipts are basically asset-backed tokens. Uh, there's several acronyms that people use these days to describe them, but they're basically an on-chain representation of a traditional financial asset. And when we say a traditional financial asset, we mean cash, debt, commodities, real estate, and ever since that idea uh, came through and Victor created and deployed our first Prider or first crypto depository receipt of the U.S. Treasury bill, he actually created it and deployed it on Robston in early 2017. Um, that became the core mission of Jibril, is to tokenize financial assets and move them on chain. Um, so yeah, that was the story of Jibril. So, so from the beginning, you guys looked at this and you said, you know, blockchains are simply transaction settlement layers. And if we can take traditional assets, you know, stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities, tokenize them and allow them to settle on chain, there's just a massive market opportunity there. Does that sound about right? Yep, that does sound about right. That's actually spot on. Okay. Um, and, and then explain- and we started with cash. Okay. Oh, I was going to say, so explain kind of the, the early steps of what you guys did. Once you have that idea, you start the company and you, you initially go with currencies first. Why did you choose currencies? And then how did you actually launch those? Great. So we registered, uh, Gibral AG is a Swiss registered entity. Um, and in Switzerland, as you might be aware, there's uh, sound regulations or as sound as possible uh, when compared to other jurisdictions for digital assets. We became a licensed financial intermediary in Switzerland that allowed us to launch JUSD, J, uh, JDP, so the digital euro, dollar, pound, and Korean one. Um, the reason why we started with cash is because cash is still king. Even if it's digital cash, it's cash. And what I mean by that is today, if I wanted to, um, so when people say tokenized cash, people often think of Tether. Yep. Our, token is, our token is quite different from Tether in the sense that uh, you could retrieve the underlying assets, so the underlying dollar through Gibral, and it's uh, 
So we had to give away on, on a bit on the decentralization element. Today, our Jcash token can only be owned or held by whitelisted or approved users. Okay. Uh, this, was, this was an important decision that we took that, all right, we are giving up a bit on the decentralization element, but that means that we know every user that is holding uh, the Jcash uh, token, and that means that we can be compliant, which is the primary reason why we were able to convince regulator, banks, and other, uh, let's say, more regulated entities to work with. Got it. And, and the thought process here is eventually you would love to get to everyone using it, but you want to start with the most regulatory compliant folks first that you can actually monitor and, and kind of audit, or is the goal to keep it only on that whitelist um, as you move forward? No, no. So uh, it's, it's like a stepping stone, I guess, yep. because at the end of the day, our U.S. dollar, our digital U.S. dollar is not going to be the de facto U.S. dollar used globally. But I can tell you comfortably in 10 years down the line, the U.S. government are going to have their own digital dollar in circulation. Mm -hmm. And then we'll obviously use that. We, uh, our, our Jcash product is to facilitate uh, stable outputs of smart contracts. Uh, today, smart contracts in the way they are today, they could make a lot of our businesses more efficient. However, no business is going to accept uh, Ether or Bitcoin, or not any business, but most businesses, especially when divesting them is not as straightforward. Whereas if you have a JUSD, that JUSD is directly backed up with an underlying dollar uh, at the custodian bank. Got it. So really the way that, the way that you're thinking about this is the Jcash uh, is a part, you know, a um, a short-term solution for a problem you guys had, but eventually the stable value of fiat currency just tokenized, you guys would use that when that's created as well. Yep. Yep, Got that it. is correct. And, and so and that's it, more on... It's interesting that you're starting with a uh, a pretty regulate, a regulatory compliant approach. Talk me through what the uh, regulation environment is like in the Middle East, right? Because you, you kind of have a unique experience in that you've lived in a couple of different countries. You obviously travel quite a bit throughout the Middle East. What are you seeing and, and kind of hearing from regulators and startups there in the Middle East? Great. Uh, very interesting question. And... I think that probably actions speak a bit uh, louder than words in, in, in the sense that we spoke to every regulator possible. I mean, okay. we went to countries that I probably couldn't pronounce properly. Offshore, <laughs> onshore. So we, we really went regulator shopping. Uh, we spoke to over 18 central banks. Um, and then I, I moved to Dubai. So I currently am a resident of Dubai. Uh, we registered two entities there. Um, I, my apartment's in Dubai, so I guess the Dubai ecosystem and the UAE ecosystem was appealing to a degree that we were like, all right, one of the co-founders or one of the four team members has to move there so that we capitalize on this rush of appetite from public and private sector for uh, blockchain development. The crown prince of Dubai, Sheikh Hamdan, launched uh, what's called the, the Dubai Blockchain Strategy. Um, and that is not a, a single strategy. So for example, they have a lot of other government strategies that complement it. One of them is the paperless government. So they have a deadline uh, towards the end of 2020 when the last government physically pay, uh, printed paper will be out. Uh, so obviously moving everything digitally helps enable moving things on chain. Uh, 
Um, so yeah, I guess in, when when you when you say Dubai or when you say UAE, there's a lot of regulators. There's the yeah. central bank, which which we're in touch with. There is DFSA, which is the regulator for DIFC, the Dubai International Financial Center, probably the biggest hub in in the Middle East and um, our part of Asia, I guess. And you have Abu Dhabi Global Markets, which is the offshore regulator in Abu Dhabi. You have ESCA, which is the Securities and Commodities Authorities. Um, I just listed the four that we currently work with. Um, there's several others in Saudi Arabia. We also work with the Central Bank of Jordan. Um, so I guess your, your question was about the regulatory uh, landscape in, yep. in, in the Middle East. There's obviously a lot of appetite um, because they don't want to be left behind. But at the same time, this is not something that can work um, when only the regulator is pushing. You have to have appetite from the regulator. You have to have appetite from the private sector as well as the user base. Uh, so all of these have to come into play as well as, as the startups, obviously, the ones that are innovating. All of these different stakeholders have to be on the same page for something to happen. So, for sure. And, and I personally believe that something as, uh, let's say, radical as this has to come from the top down. It's not going to come uh, because some union is trying to push for it. Uh, it has to be coming from the top level of the country and then enforced across. So, yeah. And, and in the UAE... Mm-hmm. Let's talk about... So, once we understand kind of the regulatory environment in the Middle East... You know, when you guys started Jabril, really the thought process was that every stock, bond, currency, and commodity would be digitized or tokenized, right? I, I, obviously, people know that um, I, I tend to believe a, a very similar um, you know, outcome will occur here. But has that vision shifted at all, right? After all the work you guys have done, and we'll get into some of the tokenized debt stuff here in a second. But after everything you guys have done, is the vision still the same? And do you still think that that's likely to happen? Or um, are there some changes? Great, great, great. So this question we received from a lot of doubters. Uh, <laughs> in your case, it's not, I know, I know it's in your case, it's kind of a lead on for me to explain and you're not actually a doubter because I know that you truly believe that everything is going to be digitized. Um, but if I refer to um, one of the, my favorite speakers uh, in, in, in our industry, Andreas Antonopoulos, and his idea of technology infrastructure, infrastructure inversion. Infrastructure inversion is something that's it's very interesting and one of the things that we are currently living, and I'll explain how that came into play with the Sukuk transaction that we conducted on chain. Technology inversion is basically when you have new technology infrastructure being built on old infrastructure. Uh, a quick example would be when horses, uh, when, when cars were, came to replace horses. These cars were driven on muddy uh, roads that were not paved. The doubters were saying that, yeah, cars are useless. Let's just go back to horses. Similar to how people are saying, yeah, digital securities don't work. Let's just go with paper-based security. Um, internet. When the internet first came, the internet infrastructure was being, or, or the internet was using modem and using phone lines, which were actually built for people to communicate and not for data and for as, as internet infrastructure. So what, what I'm trying to say is today we are building innovative solutions using smart contracts, but we are porting these solutions so that they fit with the current financial infrastructure. So there will be a point where um, 
basically the infrastructure becomes suitable for everything to be conducted on chain. Um, I'll use another example from the days of, or, or another comparison with the days of the internet. Is in the 90s, you had information being created offline or in paper-based, brick-and-mortar, traditional format, and then moved online. Uh, you had newspapers that were in printed press and then moved online. In the 2000s and today, information is being created online and it never sees paper-based. If you see paper-based, it's usually as a collectibles item or, or, or similar. Uh, people use Kindle, Audible, all these sorts of digital ways of receiving information that never makes it offline. Um, this is relevant to assets because today we are moving traditional assets on chain. We are taking a traditional bond and moving it into tokenized format. Down the line, assets will be created from scratch or, or from the beginning, they'll be created on chain. Um, so yeah, I guess I, I hope that answers your question. Got it. And, and so let's go into the tokenized debt, right? Because my general view here is that currencies are already being tokenized, right? So you've got everything from you know Bitcoin, kind of a decentralized, uh, deflationary uh, model to uh, stable coins, um, and you know people are starting to tokenize other uh, international currencies, etc. But tokenized debt seems like the next best asset to tokenize, right? And so maybe talk us through why you guys chose tokenized debt, and then we can get into what you guys did in Abu Dhabi. All right, great. So I think not only did we look at tokenized debt, we tried to be a bit more specific. Um, and, and we looked at Islamic uh, fintech products or Islamic finance products in general. Um, so today, the biggest risk in tokenizing assets is that the underlying asset is no longer there. Let's say you are currently sitting in Manhattan, the MetLife building that I can see behind you. Let's say we tokenized all of that, and now Anthony Pompiliano owns a token that represents that. The real owner of the building goes off and sells it. What happens to your tokens? They're essentially deemed worthless, and then you have a mess. So whenever there is a, um, a, not a clear link between the underlying asset and the token representing it, you're going to end up with a lot of issues. Where, as in debt, you don't really have that problem um, because you're primarily concerned with the cash flows associated with the debt. Um, plus, the advantages that can be achieved today from tokenizing debt are not something that you'll gain down the line. Uh, I'll walk you through the list of advantages that we put for Al-Hilal Bank to convince them. Okay. Um, so let, let me talk you through the, the Hilal Bank project um, briefly. We participated in the Abu Dhabi Global Markets uh, FinTech program along with, that's, that's led by a VC in San Francisco called Plug and Play. Yep. Um, so Plug and Play and ADGM have this partnership uh, to bring leading FinTech companies from across the globe to come work in the UAE. Uh, for me, it was pretty easy because I was in Dubai and Abu Dhabi is just an hour drive. We went down to, to meet the ADGM and plug and play people and they paired us with Al-Hilal Bank. So you need a progressive bank that is willing to hear you out for you to be able to execute such a project. Uh, we were blessed that the Al-Hilal Bank team 
all the way from the CEO to the digital transformation team. Um, despite being a fully government-owned bank, by the way, they are owned by Abu Dhabi Investment Council. So you're not talking about a, a small mid-tier bank. It's a government bank that's fully owned by Abu Dhabi government. Uh, so it, they have amazing ratings. Uh, it's one of the leading financial institutions in Islamic finance in the region. Uh, so we were very happy to work with them. We pitched the idea of uh, conducting a Sukuk transaction on chain. And they were like, we are sold. We want to try it out. But you obviously have a million and one obstacles in order f for you to do that. Uh, first of all, uh, we wanted to do a completely new issuance on-chain. The first thing that we faced was that um, you have to convince, obviously, compliance and risk departments that your project is mitigates risk as, as much as possible. So actually, the first part of our Hilal Bank project uh, has an insane amount of limitations. Uh, these limitations are limitations that we acknowledged and we drafted along with Al-Hilal Bank. And in phase two, three, four of the project, uh, which we basically signed phase one as mostly, it was a live uh, transaction. It was not, a, a, I don't know, a test or, or some type of sandbox initiative. It was a live transaction, but it was done with a good amount of restraints. Uh, these restraints include the Sukuk not being transferable. That was probably the major constraint that we put there so that the, the bond or the uh, debt is held until maturity by the investor. So uh, Al-Hilal Bank already have $500 million worth of five-year senior unsecured sukuk. And for those who don't know, sukuk are Islamic debt products. Um, this in specific is called... I was just going to say, explain what that means uh, with the nuances of, of kind of the uh, Sharia compliance, um, you know, relating to the Islamic debt. All right. So without going to too much detail and, <laughs> and going off topic, what we did is a murabaha transaction. Murabaha means profit driven. The direct translation from Arabic to English is profit driven. No, no, I'm not the best translator, but that's basically what it means. In Islamic finance, interest is not allowed. So anything that is interest-bearing is not Sharia compliant. So what that ends up, so the way they actually facilitate the loan is that a commodity is purchased from a third party, that commodity is then sold for a profit, and then that profit is the equivalent of what would be the interest in a traditional sense. Yep. So... Unfortunately, that leads to the process being insanely convoluted and one of the processes that could be disrupted most by smart contracts because you have a lot of repetitive transactions that could be automated when moved on chain. Um, so yeah, that's basically what a murabaha transaction is. And so when, when you tokenize this debt, right, let's walk through uh, from the issuer side, what are the advantages to the issuer in the issuance process and also in the governance of the, the debt while it's outstanding? Great. So, all right. First of all, I want to split between two things. The front side or cash flow facing element, which is the bank and the investor. So if you, if you want to draw a line in the middle where the bank is, and then you have on one side the investor, the, the investor that's going to buy this sukuk, 
And then on the on the back side is where you have the banking transactions that the bank have to do in order to facilitate this Islamic transaction. And that usually means buying Sharia compliant commodities, equities, etc. So what we did for Al-Hilal Bank is the front facing side, at least in this phase. Uh, but going forward, we want to expand through the full spectrum and have an end-to-end solution that is all done on-chain. But let me first start by explaining the, the uh, front-facing part, where the investor sends the funds to Al-Hilal Bank, receives the JHB uh, Sukuk token, and then holding the token essentially means that you will receive these programmatic cash flows whenever there's a dividends payment. So. I'm sure everyone listening to the show has has a proper understanding of, of blockchain and its advantages. But in a more specific manner, when we took when we talk about debt, um, the efficiencies that come with moving it on chain is clearing and settlement efficiencies. Um, the industry could save billions in dollars uh, by applying blockchain to the clearing and settlement of cash securities. Risk exposure reduction, so settlement risk. Exposure can be reduced by over 90%, 99%, which drastically lowers capital costs and systematic risk. Um, Also, there is no counterparty risk as the settlement happens in real time. So this is the second one. The third, I'd say, is the cost of issuance reduction. Um, Today, when you remove third-party intermediaries and the fees associated with them, the administrative burden, the amount of lawyers that come into play, Uh, with processes that are largely manual, um, and the multi-step processes would essentially be reduced. So the cost of issuance goes down a lot. The transaction costs, uh, you have lower costs of acquiring and maintaining uh, users, plus whenever you have to do the dividends payments, those are done in an automated manner as opposed to the bank doing them manually. Second, uh, sorry, number five, you have uptime and availability. Uh, Needless to say, Blockchains don't have Labor Day weekend or New Year's or Saturday. They're up 24-7, and there's no single point of failure. Um, Today, I'd say Euroclear have uh, a pretty strong control over the uh, over clearing. And imagine, in the whole Middle East, we don't have a proper clearing house. Everything goes through Euroclear or StreamClear which for me, I think is just insane because uh, we or in Dubai, we work from Sunday to Thursday and Brussels, where Euroclear uh, Euroclear is, operate from Monday to Friday. So you have, uh, plus with the time difference, you end up with only um, minimal time where you can actually do work. Finally, and most importantly, depending on how you look at it, is transparency, traceability, and auditability. Um, I usually intentionally leave this advantage as the last advantage because it could be as a disadvantage. Today, when you have a single view of records being maintained publicly and anonymously, it allows for a seamless audit process. Regulators can play a secondary role only intervening as needed as opposed to micromanaging the whole process. Um, But today, the the Ethereum blockchain, for example, has a huge um, disadvantage or a huge uh, challenge is smart contract platforms have a trade-off between privacy and functionality. DK Smart, for example, is often uh, touted as the solution for privacy, but 
when I have discussions with, with uh, more technical people, they always say that there is a huge uh, issue with implementing complex smart contracts if you implement ZK SNARKs, because the first thing uh, a smart contract will do is it will refer back to the original address to retrieve information. If that address is anonymized, then that, and that forces you to give up a lot of the functionality that comes along with these smart contract platforms. So uh, that is an advantage, and it could be also considered a disadvantage. Um, so the full transparency... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So the full transparency is not something that traders, investors want to do. Um, I'm, I'm sure as, as a professional trader, you'd appreciate that you don't want all your trades being publicly announced. So we believe at Gibral that the current setup of blockchains allow you to um, automate a lot of the processes, but it won't allow you to reach critical mass and uh, disrupt the likes of EuroClear and StreamClear where uh, privacy is still uh, intact, I guess, in terms of, because investors don't want to give that up. I mean, privacy is not something that, especially when it comes to, to financial transactions, they don't want their uh, transactions to be publicly recorded in a, in a transparent manner, I guess. Got it. And, and so as you're doing this, it makes a lot of sense why the issuer would want to use tokenized debt. What's been the reaction from uh, others, maybe that, that weren't involved in this transaction, but you know, potential investors in these types of uh, instruments? I'm guessing that there's a lot of excitement, but maybe you could kind of shed some light on, uh, on the more nuanced uh, reactions. Yeah, good question. So today, it's very easy to move stuff on chain. The supply side is not the issue. You need the proper buyers, the Black Rocks, the, the people that actually buy these debt instruments to be able to transact on chain. And that's not gonna happen overnight, um, which is why you have to start with, I guess, more pragmatic sequential, with a more pragmatic sequential approach. Um, in our case, we put our money where our mouth is. We got the investors for the Hilal Bank Sukuk. Uh, we participated ourselves, plus we got private investors from the UAE. Um, that is not something that is very scalable because today um, you have lead arrangers, basically. So any, not any, most banks around the world deal, deal with the likes of Deutsche um, and, and institutions of that size to help them sell their debt across the globe. So... Uh, small bank in uh, Malta or Dubai or any other country is not going to go around the world getting investors. They are going to go to the lead arranger who then in turn gets, helps them get investors. But as we've seen from the ICO craze, um, there is a lot of potential in um, basically, yeah, but that also comes with its challenges that I'll go through in just a bit. But Today, the, the method of, of fundraising, whether it's an ICO or whether it's a bank, is slowly but surely being disrupted. Um, and and what, what I mean by that is, today, the minimum ticket to buy a bond for Al-Hilal Bank or any similar bank in the UAE is $100,000 to $200,000. And that is for three main reasons. Uh, the first reason is the regulators want to uh, protect retail investors, and that's not something that we're addressing by moving stuff on chain. But you have the cost of issuance and the cost of monitoring um, 
Today, if you came to Al-Hilal Bank and told them, hey, I want to buy Sukuk for $1,000, they're not going to entertain your thought because the legal fees associated with that $1,000, the tracking of uh, your profits so that they send you your profit every six months just is not worth it. But once you have that in tokenized format, you automate a large amount of these processes and you then make it feasible to drop your uh, minimum tickets to a much lower size. And when you do that, your target addressable market goes up by several folds. Um, it's also very important to stay realistic uh, in a sense that these large institutions, Deutsche, JPM, and the likes, they still control uh, or they still have the, the, not the final say, but they're a lot stronger than getting, I don't know, a few thousand retail investors. But that process is changing slowly but surely, and the dependency on these lead ranges is not going to disappear overnight, but you'll be able to have alternative routes, I guess. Got it. And what what are the concerns with um, tokenized debt, right? Because there's a ton of advantages, both for the issuer and for the uh, the investor. But if you had to point out, what are the maybe some downsides or, or negatives to uh, to moving to this tokenized debt world? Okay, so you have, I'd say, four things. Some of them I already touched on, so I won't bore you with the ones that I discussed. Yep. But I think the most important one is cross-border enforceability. Okay. So today, if I hold a debt token in Jordan and I bought, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm staying in Dubai, for example, and I bought a security token in Mexico. Um, and that security token, I only purchased $1,000 or $2,000 worth. Let's assume uh, the bank defaults and I don't get back my money. It's not feasible for me to hire a lawyer to go to Mexico to do arbitration and such because I've already invested $1,000 or $2,000. So figuring out cross-border enforceability is something that is insanely important and will remain a limitation until it is addressed. So I think that is, that is definitely something that this is not only for debt tokens. If you buy, so I'm sure you've heard the acronym STO a million times over. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, so if I invested in a company in, yeah, since I used Mexico already, let's say Mexico. And I supposedly own 10% equity of that company. Um, today, when you're still running on old infrastructure, the process of distributing dividends still happens in a traditional sense. Let's say the owner of that company doesn't like me and did not send me my profits. What am I going to do to address that? Am I going to hire a lawyer and send them to Mexico? The whole profit that I'm going to get out of a $2,000 investment is, let's say, I don't know, $1,000, assuming they, they distributed 50% dividends, which is not the case for most companies, but uh, for any company, actually, these days. Uh, but the point that I'm trying to say is that uh, cross-border enforceability is something that is very difficult and it will only be uh, addressed in two potential ways. One is when you have re different regulators coming on the same page. For example, there's this initiative between London, Singapore, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Bahrain, and I think 10 other regulators to create, uh, let's say, shared jurisdiction where regulations, they have like shared shared regulations for fintech companies. Um, such initiatives are, I don't know, difficult to materialize, but if something like that comes into life, then I think that could be a good solution for cross-border enforceability. The second one is, 
obviously a new way to incentivize people not to do that. Uh, that I'll go into detail in into more detail later. But the second challenge is the current uh, the current technology stack. I mentioned that smart contract platforms have a trade-off between privacy and functionality. That is something that needs to be addressed for us to have, um, let's say, large-scale issuances of that on-chain. Thirdly is, yeah, third is kind of related to number one, which is regulators keeping up in terms of uh, clear-cut processes for dispute resolution. Um, if you have a clear dispute resolution uh, process, that removes from your need to do cross-border enforceability. Um, fourth, which is the most important one, is figuring out the demand side. Um, but this is something that happens with, with, with time. So going back to the initial point that I said about technology infrastructure inversion, when electricity for the, in, in, in uh, the Paris fair, the mayor of Paris said that, yeah, electricity is just a fad, as soon as this Paris shows over, the Eiffel Tower will be shut down in terms of the, the electricity being used, and electricity be, will be a fad. And the reason he cited is that who is going to use it? This only works if a lot of people use it. This limitation is also applied to tokenized securities. It's today, it's the game that people say, that, yeah, not too many people use it, so therefore it's not going to be successful. Reaching that critical mass does take time, and yeah, I guess. The Bill Gates quote here is relevant, where, we, where he used to say that we always overestimate the amount technology is going to have on our lives and on the world of business in the coming one to two years, but we underestimate the effect that it's going to have in the coming four to five years. For sure. What, what do you think the future looks like, right? So, you know, we're talking right now about kind of where we are today and what the promise of this technology is, but what would you say 10 years from now is the actual... Uh, impact of this, right? Where could we get, or what is the potential for uh, for tokenized securities? All right, so I'm, uh, the, the potential is unlimited, and uh, it's very difficult to um, predict the future, but there's two things that I think will happen. First of all, regulations will no longer depend on human decisions to be enforced. Going back to the initial point that I talked about capital adequacy ratios and banks doing self-reporting, when the bank does self-reporting, you are essentially depending on the banks, uh, let's say, uh, acting in, in, accordance, in accordance with regulations. The Treasury Department of the bank has the ability to break the law and not self-report, assuming the bank is not acting as a, let's say, honest actor. So today, regulations are extremely reactive. What we'll see 10 years down the line is regulations being proactively enforced in an automated manner. So you don't even have the option of breaking the law. Um, I remember you mentioned this point earlier where the Fed uh, will have significantly lower costs of uh, enforcing regulations when the regulations enforce themselves. So we call this module Adgebral Smart Regulations, and we work with several law firms to translate some of the most problematic regulations into Solidity code and embedding them into our tokens. So the simplest example is our Jcash solution with JUSD. If you uh, sent me, uh, I don't know, 10 million JUSD or 1 million JUSD, and I'm a blacklisted address, the JUSD token itself would refuse 
uh, going into my wallet. So, yeah, basically the automation of enforcement of financial regulation. Uh, that is one. The second one, which is the most interesting one, is we will see assets that were previously unimaginable. Today, we the financial assets that, that we know are due to, I don't know, hundreds of years of financial innovation. And I'm going to use the example of derivatives and an example of a guy called Eddie O'Connor that used to work for the Chicago Board of Trade, and which led to the creation of modern-day derivatives as we know them. So this guy used to be one of the most prominent soybean traders, um, and he was one of the co-founders of the Chicago Board of, of Options. But basically what, what his suggestion was is that today, or in, in the 50s, 60s, they used to use chalk blackboard to write prices of assets, commodities, and, and, and financial assets, basically. And his suggestion was... Why are we using uh, chalkboard? Let's move it to an electronic screen. Uh, people said, nah, it's a cosmetic change. It's not going to have much of an effect, but fine, we'll do it. After that happened, there was um, a change in, in, in how quickly the price of an asset is updated on the how, how quickly a price is updated because you used to depend on someone going in, erasing the answer, and then writing it again. Uh, so when it became an electronic automatic feed, that allowed people to come up with financial derivatives. If you create, if you had financial derivatives based on a chalkboard system, you that wouldn't be possible. So I guess the point that I'm trying to make is when you make assets programmatic, uh, you could, or not you could, we will see the emergence of new financial assets that were previously unimaginable using our existing uh, infrastructure. Got it. And, and I guess the, really the regulators, governments, and banks, although there is somewhat of a threat to them, there's also a lot of advantages. And it is probably unlikely that they would fight tokenization or digitization of uh, securities as much as, let's say, maybe they would fight a Bitcoin, a decentralized currency. Is that your general thought as well? I completely agree with that. Um, you you often say long Bitcoin short bankers. So <laughs> I, I I agree with that. Except I want to short not all bankers. I want to short the banks that are stuck in their old ways. Um, That's fair. For example, uh, a bank like Revolut. I have huge respect for how quickly they changed uh, how people approach retail and consumer banking. Um, a bank like Al Hilal Bank, which is a government-owned bank that, in a traditional sense, if I if if we had this discussion two years ago, I would have told you, yeah, Hilal Bank, no way would we, no way would they bite uh, because they're government-owned. It's a very bureaucratic process. But we saw that within, I mean, the the usually business-to-business -business technology sales, the sales cycle is six to twelve months. With Al Hilal Bank, um, I actually spent two weeks straight in Abu Dhabi uh, because we created like a, a full team that comprises of uh, the treasury department, the treasury operations department, risk, compliance, security, um, yeah, a total of 12 departments actually. And we worked very hard along with our development team to translate a, a big portion of their 207 page prospectus uh, into Solidity code, and we're able to deploy the uh, 
smart contract that mimics uh, the, the actual Sukuk transaction. Uh, plus, we were able to get an investor from Dubai to, to put this all into action because you could translate all the bonds in the world into code, but if no one's going to buy them, then what's the use? Um, so, yeah. And I guess really the the big thing here that fascinates me is this idea of the code governing as not only law, but also as a regulator, right? The, an element of law. How do you think that evolves, right? How far can we go with code actually governing, um, you know, significant portions of our lives rather than um, maybe having code as an important piece with human oversight, right? Like, like can we get to fully automated um, processes or, or will there always be a need for those human, uh, that human oversight? Okay, so I think Vitalik has a famous quote that says, code is law. Um, and I agree partially with that, but I'm a lot more pragmatic when it comes to saying everything will be disrupted. So even in the world today, if you take a look at payments, okay, you have payments that are done in cash, you have payments that are done through check, you have payments that are done with travel, traveler's check, debit card, barter. Um, so yeah, all of these came at very different times. Barter has been there since the beginning of time. Cash has been there for a very long time. Debit cards, not too much. Wire transfers online. So what, I, what I'm trying to say is that some portions of regulations will be automated and some other parts will still have to depend on human intervention and um, more subjective, I guess, uh, decision-making. Um, so yeah, it, it'll, it'll be a mix and it'll be a, a process where the most program... Uh, yani, all right, so you have the most pro problematic regulations and the easiest regulations to enforce. The, if you draw a Venn chart and see the intersection between those, those would be the regulations that are moved on chain first. Yep, it's fascinating. I mean, this to me is such an exciting part of, uh, of this entire industry and uh, you guys are obviously at the forefront. Um, so so it's, uh, it's really cool to hear your perspective as to... Uh, you know, what's going on, why people are doing it. And then obviously you guys have done it um, and hear kind of the pros and cons. So I appreciate uh, you doing that. Uh, before we wrap up though, I'd love to ask a couple of uh, rapid fire questions. Um, the first the first being, what do you think the most controversial thought you have in crypto is, right? If you, if you shared that thought with a whole bunch of people, uh, many of them would disagree. What is that one thought? Hmm... So I'm still not very sure about central bank issued digital currency. Uh, and I've done quite a bit of research on that front. And actually, this is not a controversial point, but it'll be a controversial topic once it's there. Okay. Will we see the world's first central bank issued um, digital currency? That will come with a lot of fraud, a lot of money laundry, uh, because no one understands it. No one understands how it properly works. Um, and it would be the first of its kind. So I'm really excited to see when that comes into play. Uh, plus, I think one other very controversial point is that people say that we want to automate, let's say, regulations, but that comes with you giving up a lot of privacy. So the way the GDPR has been set up 
is is very interesting, and it'll be it'll be interesting to see how other countries adopt similar or different regulations for for uh, information security and privacy, because that is very relevant to uh, automation of of enforcing regulations. I guess. Got it. And then what do you think is the, other than Jabril, you can't say Jabril, but what do you think the most important company in crypto is? Oh, good question. Uh, so that's why I'm here. I only ask good questions, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the most important company at the moment, one could argue is Coinbase. Okay. Why? Uh, all right. So Coinbase facilitates uh, what are people interested in today when you come to crypto? People are mostly interested in buying and selling and making some quick bucks, making some money, getting their feet dirty in this or hands dirty in this industry. Um, people still don't use crypto for remittance. People use crypto for, oh, wait, back to the most controversial thought. Um, the biggest use case for crypto today, and I'm willing to, I guess, bet with anyone on that, uh, is that it is used to circumvent capital uh, capital control measures. So we, we'll get to the uh, second question, but I'm going back to the controversial one, where the biggest use case for Bitcoin in specific and other crypto today is escaping capital controls. When the Turkish lira collapsed, I don't know, not too long ago, when uh, there was political turmoil, Turkey jumped from, I think, number 150 in terms of globally, the percentage of people holding Bitcoin to the number one in terms of percentage of population holding Bitcoin. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see how Bitcoin evolves um, with the potential collapse of some fiat currencies globally. I'm not saying the collapse of the dollar because that is too radical and I'm not a big fan of uh, conspiracy theories and, and, and such, but there are some uh, emerging countries that might have difficulties or will have difficulties maintaining their own currency. And it'll be great seeing how Bitcoin is used then. People move money from China all the time using Bitcoin. Turkey, Morocco, uh, Venezuela. So yeah, that is the biggest Bitcoin or crypto use case today. And Got it. And, and, and if you could wave a magic wand and change any one regulation, what would it be? Mm. So you the can U.S. Change, market change or improve it. Okay. So I personally think that the U.S. market remains, or the U.S. consumer remains, the most important. Uh, I don't know single factor in the world economy. Um, so the 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 ability for foreign blockchain companies to come in and work in the U.S has not been uh, great. So I would definitely change the regulations in the US because you have companies such as, I don't know, Binance mentioned that they wouldn't be entering the US, other companies. We haven't operated in the US yet because the regulatory landscape is still not yet clear, but we want to work in the US because it's, it's not an economy that you can just say, oh, I'm not gonna operate in Italy. If you don't operate in the U.S., you're essentially giving up uh, the golden goose. Um, and that's, that's why uh, Yezen, our CEO, and the rest of the team work out of the New York office uh, is because our midterm strategy definitely involves us working in the U.S. Got it. 
That, uh, that, I think that's fair. And, and it's, um, it is probably a sentiment that is echoed by many people internationally. So, uh, so hopefully we can, uh, we can keep moving forward on that in the, here in uh, the United States. Uh, what's the most important book you've ever read? All right. So important blockchain book, let's see. Okay. Actually, yeah. um, all right. I'll give you two. Um, one of our advisors or our, our strategy advisor is Don Tapscott. So his blockchain revolution book is, is a perfect book for someone that wants to go in and start understanding the industry. So it gives you a, let's say, a holistic overview of, of uh, blockchain, digital assets, uh, it even talks a bit about Gibral as well. So I'm a bit biased there, but yeah, I would definitely say on and Alex Tapscott's blockchain revolution um, is the book that, that uh, I suggest everyone reads. This is for, uh, uh, obviously, blockchain. Um, but yeah, I think my favorite book of this past year was Sapiens uh, from Professor Yuval Harari. And before that was the, a book by Og Mandigo called The Greatest Salesman on Earth, uh, or The World's Greatest Salesman. Um, Why did you like The uh, World's Greatest Salesman? Is because I, I studied engineering and then I worked in finance and I had absolutely no idea how sales works. Um, and I read that book and I followed it religiously and it's one hell of a book because it changes your mentality on, uh, on, on, I, I really didn't think much of, I didn't put too much thought into sales, but it's something that is insanely important and no business in the world works without it. Uh, so for people that are either technical or financial and lack that sense of, of, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say charisma, but in terms of sales ability. This for book sure. is perfect. It, it's perfect at um, you refining your own strategy to sales. Absolutely. Um, so it's yeah, a book that I definitely recommend. All right. So before I let you ask me one question to, uh, to wrap this up, I've got one non-crypto question. Uh, you've got to admit that there are aliens out there somewhere. And uh, I've always thought about it in terms of... Um, there's human aliens, right? That's the comparison that people make. Do you think that aliens have pets and are there animal aliens? All right. So I think it's uh, firstly, you, you can't say that. So your question assumes that aliens are human because, or, or not human, humanized, where there's the alien and its pet, where in reality, both would be considered aliens. Yeah. Um, so the definition of pet, it's again a very philosophical question that I like, but yeah, everyone has, everyone, uh, yeah, they definitely have pets. Aliens do have pets. You think that there's multiple species floating around there? Sorry? I said you think that there's multiple species floating around there? Yes, I definitely do. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. What, uh, what one question do you have for me? Hmm. What's the most interesting project you've seen so far and why? But yeah, the other question is when you're going to visit Dubai, but that we'll address later. <laughs> uh, the most interesting project. This is, uh, people will be disappointed when I say this, but uh, it's still Bitcoin. I, 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 you know, I'm fortunate enough where every single day I get uh, entrepreneurs who, who spend time to tell me about the things that they're working on. They get to show me, you know, kind of what the future can look like. And, and frankly, it's, uh, 
it's pretty cool to have uh, have this job. But I got to say that um, I think Bitcoin is still the uh, the most exciting thing to me. Uh, one because uh, it's working, right? Two, it kind of was the first application and so beautifully designed. Um, and then the third thing, and, and I think um, you know one of the pieces of Bitcoin success that uh, just blows me away. There is no company. There is no marketing department. There is no one person who owns it, right? And, and it has really um, had to survive based on the technology and the use case or the adoption. Um, and, and it's done so in, in a way that uh, many people who you know either created it or, or were there in the early days probably didn't expect it to. Um, and, and so uh, for that you know, reason, it, it's still super interesting, intriguing. Um, and, uh, and we'll see where this thing goes, but, uh, you know, the potential of it, um, is, uh, is quite overwhelming at times. Yeah. So hats off for that answer. Uh, nothing has even come close to what Bitcoin has achieved. And, and the fact that there's no one behind it that is publicly facing and doing interviews that I'm doing to, to, to promote their project or idea or yeah, it's, uh, and if Bitcoin taught us one thing that it does not die. <laughs> uh, definitely it could be beaten up, it. but it doesn't die. Yeah, well, well and, and here's what I would say, right? You know, look, the if you ask me what is the second most interesting space, right, after Bitcoin, to me, the most interesting thing other than Bitcoin is this idea of every stock, bond, currency, and commodity being digitized or tokenized. Um, it, it's not because I think that it's the most innovative. It's not because I think it's the most disruptive. It's because I think it's the largest market opportunity. Right. It's just there's so much, there's so such a large uh, asset base in real estate, in debt, derivatives, and all these things. Um, and, and so I think uh, people are probably underestimating how large those markets are. Uh, but along with that, there's not going to be one winner. Right. There's going to be multiple people who service different parts of the industry, different assets, you know, different regions. Um, and, and so it's going to be really exciting to kind of see um, who, uh, who wins and in what ways. And, and I think hats off to you guys for, uh, for pulling off, you know, at least what I understand is, uh, is the largest tokenized debt um, transaction. So uh, you know, congrats on that. Wow. And, uh, and hopefully we're just uh, getting started. I mean, uh, we'll we, be we back made... with more. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We, we got pretty good media exposure and that kind of showed us the difference between when a bank and a regulator speak to the media versus a crypto startup like us speak to the media. I mean, we didn't push the news of Hilal Bank to uh, many outlets, but when they did, it it got a bit viral and we got a lot of exposure because of that. Uh, But in reality, we have a lot of similar projects in the pipeline, some of them that are in pilots, some of them that are in live implementation. Um, We are in 2019, debt is definitely a focus, but commodities and real estate are two other things that we're also looking at. And I'm not shy to say that real estate is something that's opportunistic. In Dubai, they are working on moving title deeds on chain, and which addresses the biggest issue of a token not being linked to underlying assets. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a it's very gonna, interesting. It's going to yeah. be epic. Right, it is going to be epic when all this stuff happens. All right, sir. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming on and spending so much time with us. Um, and uh, and. Hope-
hopefully uh, I will see you in Dubai soon um, and, uh, and and we'll have to do this again. Great. And I'll uh, see you in New York. Been a big fan of your show. So very happy to be on Off the Chain. Have an amazing day and hope to see you soon. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, man. See you. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.